Yeah, can you hear me? There we go. Ah, uh, well, you know, I, I'm technologically challenged, and uh, <laughs> I was, at first I was trying to get on on my uh, iPad. Yeah. And it it wasn't working. It just kept telling me that uh, I uh, didn't have an uh, I didn't have a valid address that I was trying to reach or something. Yeah, Zoom and, is so finicky sometimes. Yeah. So anyhow, I I went back to to the phone, and so here we are. Here we go. Is it working out for you? Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. You're, you're more than you would be on the iPhone or on the iPad, but you know, everything's fine. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, welcome to Toys on Tap. This is, uh, we talked a little bit about it. Toys on Tap is a, a podcast where I bring on um, different toy makers from all different toy scenes. And every once in a while, I get someone like you, who's a sculptor that made some of the toys that I played with when I was a kid. So it's such a joy to have someone like yourself on. Yeah. Well, that's nice to know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself to everyone that's listening on the podcast? Okay, sure. Uh, my name is uh, Stephen Geddes. And um, I uh, started my career in toy uh, sculpture uh, back in 1977, uh, working for Kenner Products. Holy moly. That's incredible. Just hearing that that phrase. <laughs> products. Um, so uh, I figure the way that we can do this is um, maybe we start back and figure out when did you know that you wanted to do sculpting? And then we can walk through Kenner a little bit and figure out all those different toys. Um, well, I, I, I became intrigued with sculpture while I was in college and um, in undergraduate school. And I had um, thought of myself primarily first, of course, as a painter. Everybody starts out, I think, as a painter. You know, they're going to be a painter. And uh, my my uh, primary plan was to, um, first of all, get a, a, an art ed degree so that I could uh, teach, you know, uh, elementary and high school art. And uh, then, you know, kind of pay the bills with that. And then go on to graduate school, and uh, so I, I uh, became intrigued uh, with being a printmaker, and especially was enamored with uh, lithography and and uh, etching. And um, I took a uh, I took a general design class uh, at at uh, college with a uh, um, instructor who was primarily the uh, sculpture instructor and um, he, he kind of talked me into taking sculpture the next semester and so I did and I you know thrashed around in, incoherently in <laughs> every media they had to offer and produced just a, a world of god-awful sculpture <laughs> and uh, so at any rate uh, at the end of the semester it was the end of the, of the academic year and um, he wrote a critique uh, for everybody, all the students and each student in the class. And uh, I got it after uh, he was there uh, to uh, as an interim instructor. Uh, the regular instructor was on a, a sabbatical. And uh, at any rate, he was gone. So I couldn't argue with him or, or, you know, ask him any more questions. But he just said, you know, you suffer so much. 
uh, in the course of making sculpture, he says, I think you'd just, you'd be happier just sticking to, uh, uh, you know, like uh, two dimensional, you know, printmaking and, and uh, painting. He says, you draw real well and everything, you know, I says, uh, uh, you know, stop suffering. And uh, so, you know, when I got that uh, letter, that critique, uh, I thought, oh, what does he mean? I, if I'm going to be an artist, I have to be able to do it all. Mm-hmm. And so basically I spent the next the next four years trying to prove to myself uh, that I, I, I could do sculpture. And uh, I had, I had <clears throat> the, the closest I, I had come to sculpture uh, was carving plaster and then, you know, in Boy Scouts carving neckerchief slides. And I really liked interacting with, uh, you know, with wood. And I, I liked the, the, the idea of three dimensions. So I spent uh, the next, you know, like I said, four years um, <clears throat> trying to develop as a, as a sculptor and, and become really intrigued with it. And um, at any rate, I, I had a chance to um, apply to uh, for a, uh, an assistantship at Ohio University uh, as a woodcarving uh, TA. Mm-hmm. And so I did, and I, you know, went through that, got my, uh, you know, uh, master's in fine art in sculpture, and then uh, the next step theoretically was to, uh, you know, secure a college teaching job. And uh, that was right about the time uh, the the Vietnam War had ended, and people were not going to school in the same volume, uh, same mass that they were uh when i'd gone in and uh people you know instead of adding faculty colleges were kind of trying to lose faculty Mm -hmm. and um so i spent a year working with uh the kentucky arts commission as an artist in the schools and then um it became apparent that uh, the college market was glutted, and um, through an uh, employment agency, um, I was made aware of um, a, a toy company that was looking for uh, product sculptors. And uh, the description of the job was for a senior toy sculptor uh, to work with a company located near Cincinnati, Ohio. And uh, so the farther I explored it and I contacted the employment employment agency and interviewed with them and everything. And it turned out to be Kenner Products, which was right in the middle of downtown Cincinnati in the Kroger building. And so uh, I basically, I uh, got an interview with uh, the the, uh, head of the sculpture department and uh, met with him, and he wanted me to do an audition piece, uh, which turned out to be a doll's head. Mm. And, uh, you know, that, um, that wasn't exactly, um, you know, my my favorite subject matter. But um, I cobbled together one. Uh, I, he it indicated to me that he wanted it done in wax. And the only wax I had at hand uh, at home was uh, founder wax, uh, basically Vickery Brown, which is used in uh, you know lost wax casting in in the bronze uh, uh, sculpture foundries. 
<clears throat> so I cobbled together, you know, something that looked like the, the baby doll head drawing that he had given me. And I took it back up and submitted it and uh, he looked at it and uh, he said, well, uh, well, you know, let's see. And in the meantime, um, we had our, our lease was up in Kentucky. And so we yeah. ended up moving up to northern Wisconsin. Uh, and we were yeah, staying with my uh, wife's family, and we had our whole household in the garage. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I, you know, things dragged on and on. And uh, he, he um, contacted me, wanted me to uh, uh, fly down to Cincinnati then and um, pick up uh, a waxer and uh, some wax and a, a baby doll head and do a second uh, audition piece for him. And so I, you know, did that, and he gave me the the hot wax pen and and uh, so forth, and gave me a can, rough cast of a baby doll head, and he wanted me to clean it up and change, make a few changes in it, and basically confirm the fact that I could work in the medium. And uh, so I did, and didn't hear anything, didn't hear anything, you know, through the summer, and uh, finally uh, I went down to the local. Um, uh, employment agency, the state employment agency, yeah, in town. Uh, this was in Tomahawk, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Gives you an idea how big it was. <laughs> yeah, the metropolis. Well, uh, up there, the the major industry is paper mills, and uh, so I got a I got a job working as a surveyor's assistant. They were building a new addition to the paper mill, and so I was a surveyor's assistant for three glorious days. <clears throat> and basically that meant I just, you know, carried the rod around, held the rod straight. And, uh, you know, then <laughs> it was, it was exciting. Um, but on the third day, uh, somebody comes out, uh, into the yard and, uh, tells me that I've got a, a phone call. So I went and answered the phone area and picked up the phone and it was my wife. She said, turn in your tool belt. You got a job. They just called. And uh, that was that, you know, from then on, I, I uh, moved down to Cincinnati and, uh, you know, started working for Kenner. That's incredible yeah. how long they took to finally hire you. Uh, along the the journey, is there a time when you felt that you weren't struggling with sculpting anymore, that it was something that you had learned to do better? Yeah, by the time I got out of graduate school, I, uh, I mean, I, I was all, I could always model. Yeah, uh, that wasn't a problem. Uh, I, I never had a problem with form. I understood it. Um, it, it was basically, you know, uh, working with uh, ideas and and how do you want to apply it? Uh, it's kind of like you know, you've got this camera and uh, you can take snapshots or you can take. You know, something you can try to be Ansel Adams, mm-hmm. and you know, basically, I wanted to be Ansel Adams, and uh, so um, I, I, I always wanted to uh, do figurative work. I was never particularly attracted to um, abstraction. I just I was comfortable with the figure, and I, I liked working with it, or you know, working with figurative uh, imagery. Um. So by the time I got out of graduate school, I'd, I'd done bronze casting and, and modeling and a lot of wood carving. And um, 
I would, I had been, I had been working with, um, uh, kind of, uh, early American, um, imagery, uh, by early American, I mean, 19th century, late, late 19th century. Um, I, I was working with, um, carousel imagery mm -hmm. and, uh, what I was doing was, uh, I was, I was taking carousel, the carousel imagery, uh, the ornamentation and all that. And I was applying it to, to figures like, uh, centaurs. And, um, at that time I had done, a um, carousels uh, very often would have a menagerie. They'd have more than just horses. And, uh, uh, so I did a, I did a lion that, uh, was, uh, turned into a sphinx mm. it, it, it it was referencing uh traditional carousel lions but i gave it the the front end of uh, dolly parton <laughs> and uh then i i did a i had a uh, i had done a uh, las vegas ostrich where it's the body of an ostrich and the upper part you know is a las vegas showgirl <laughs> and things like that so yeah. when when um when I had been contacted by the uh, um, the employment agency before I started at Kenner, um, the fellow said, "Have you seen Star Wars yet?" And I said, "No, I haven't." He said, "Go see it. They just they they signed the you know they signed the contract. Uh, they've got the rights to make Star Wars toys." And uh, so my wife and I went down to the next town. Uh, which had a theater that was showing Star Wars. And um, so sat, got in there and sat down. And by the time uh, we got through the cantina uh, scene in the beginning of the movie, I thought, I got to work for these guys. <laughs> I mean, they were, they were, their, their stuff was even more bizarre than what I was working with. And uh, so uh, when I started, I, I was, I was pretty, uh, pretty excited. You know, I, I thought uh, this is going to be fun. Um, on, on the way into town when, um, John Gardner, who was the head of uh, the sculpting department had picked me up from the airport that, that second interview, um, we were driving into town and from the airport and, uh, he's just making small talk with me. And he says, you know, there's this guy in Pennsylvania who um, carves a, he, he carves a, a three and three quarter inch action figure with uh, all the articulation in place and everything, you know, and the torso is, is in two parts, you know, front to back. So it traps the, the, the uh, limbs, just like, you know, it's going to do in production and everything. His name's Bill Lemon. He says, and he only charges $750 a figure. And he says, I don't know how he makes out. And of course, you know, I, at that point I thought, wow, this is the promised land. <laughs> I've been working with, you know, like figures that were five and six feet tall. And the idea of getting paid $750 to do a little bitty figure like that, um, you know, really, uh, you know, sounded like uh, I hit the jackpot. And so at any rate, um, the first project I got, when I was working with, uh, you know, at the, in the Kenner facility as an employee was that little Dianoga, that, that, uh, trash compactor monster. 
Awesome. And um, basically, all you see in the movie is just this little, you know, kind of uh, periscope type thing. You know, it's got it's an eyeball on a stalk. And um, that was all the information they got from from Lucasfilm. And so um, the the product designer, the the uh, industrial designer that that had had the project, uh, he made up the rest of it. And so um, I got the drawing, you know, the scale drawing and everything. And he told me what you know, what they wanted it to be like. And so um, I, I started working on that. And John Gardner, I think, uh, regretted having told me about Bill Lemon and what Bill Lemon got for a figure. And so he kept me working on that Dianoga figure for about six weeks. And the thing was, you know, like it was, it was like this. Okay. So really small. Yeah. It's what about four inches long. Yeah. Six, six weeks working on a, on a four inch, uh, non-human figure. We interrupted this broadcast of toys on top to bring you this. Meanwhile, in a galaxy of bootleg treasures. DOV2, we have an engine failure. We must crash land on DKE to a planet. Oh my. Wait! Salvation! Hooray! We've saved DLV2! Limited edition custom artist-made action figures and DKE toys! Check out www.dkatoys.com for a full catalog. Hooray for custom action figures! DKE! Uh, it was really a kind of a come down. And I, I think John uh, probably wanted to make it clear to me that um, this was a, a, a serious job. It was really work, and you had to get everything just right. And so, I, basically, I, I learned a lot about about the the needs for uh, for a, a prototype um, to go to the toolers. Was there a little bit of a learning curve? Because you hadn't done action figures until this point, was there a little bit of a learning curve when you started by like how to sculpt something so small? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, it, the the whole thing uh, was an adjustment. Uh, just the 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 matter of scale uh, was was huge because of the fact that, um, well, you know, every every square, you know, millimeter of surface meant something. Mm -hmm. working large you know you, it's it's a much freer kind of uh um kind of uh job that you're doing it's kind of like working on, a, on the sistine chapel or working on a you know like a van eyck painting or something you know a little bitty miniature or something um so um i know when i showed up you know i noticed that everybody was wearing optivisors which are these, uh, you know, magnifiers on a headpiece, you know, where yeah. you can tilt them out of the way when you're, you know, when you don't need them. But I, I came in the first day and everybody's sitting there with their heads down, uh, looking through these optivisors and working with dental tools. And, you know, nobody, <laughs> nobody was talking right anything. And I thought, well, that's strange. Everybody just got, got to work right away. You know, I, no, no morning talking or anything like that you know everybody was already working 
And uh, then John Gardner says, oh, this is your first day. This is when you start. I said, yeah. <laughs> and uh, he says, oh, well, I forgot to tell you. We start at 7. It was 8 o'clock. Oh. Uh, you know, so <laughs> and he says, oh, you're going to need a desk. And so he scrambles around, clears off uh, this uh, desk. They had a cluster of desks in this small space. And, uh, you know, so they got found a chair for me and then, uh, uh, you know, uh, cleared the desk and everything, sat me down. And then that's when I, you know, the designer came up and, and showed me the the drawing for the Dianoga. Um, and I didn't really have any any tools of that scale. Uh, you know, I, most of my tools were for something a lot much bigger. And... Uh, so uh, at noon hour, um, they told me there was a uh, art supply place, uh, art supply store down just across the parkway uh, in in an old section of uh, Cincinnati uh, called Over the Rhine. And so I went down there and bought a few, you know, small plaster and wax tools, and uh, that was the start of it. You know, and it was just um, from then on, it was just a matter of you know getting a little more demanding jobs um, gradually. Yeah. With your start on the Dianoga, um, I, I, it's hard. I can't imagine looking at some kind of a drawing and then trying to shape it out. What is that process process like? Because it's almost like free. You have so much freedom, but then also so much strict guidance. What is that kind of looking like? Well, it's it, it's a matter of, well, yeah. I was fortunate in that the, the designer uh, had given me a drawing where he had the, the profile, he had the front view, and then he had a top view. So, you know, he gave me the kind of the parameters, spatial parameters. And so at that point, I, I made a little wire armature. And um, then I, I just took, so they had uh, modeling clay. And most, um, unless, unless it was uh, a similar a similar uh, toy to something else, you'd start with modeling clay and uh, you'd get that close. You'd get the forms. With, with toys, there's no sense in getting a lot of detail into the clay. And so what you do is you get your basic form and then you make a... At that time, we would make a plaster mold mm. of it. Uh, you know, just to, And for something like this, it was just a simple two-piece plaster mold uh the parting line wasn't flat because of the craning neck of the of the the uh, figure and so you just you would clay it up you clay up your with you know like water clay or a softer clay uh, basically you would you would um put the bottom half in 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 a block of clay and you would have your parting line already established on the clay and then you just um, close up all the gaps around it, um, and then you'd make a you'd uh, pour a, a top half to it. You'd have a, a little what you call a flask. Uh, they they had these um, little uh, plates of, of aluminum, and they'd have angle iron on one end. And what you would do is you just kind of you, know, you would um, clamp them together at whatever size you wanted that that uh, mold to be and then uh you'd trim the, the the clay around it 
which is you would call it the land, you know, the, the land of a, of a mold is the, the part that it kind of defines the plane that, that um, the parting line is in. Mm -hmm. And, and so then you just pour the plaster in and then when that is done, you flip it over, you clean the clay off the bottom of it. And then you put uh, like green soap or a parting agent on there so they won't stick together. And then you pour the bottom half. And then when you get done, you you separate them. You dig out your clay. You clean the mold. And um, then you uh, usually cut a uh, um, a sprue or a tunnel um, between the two halves and then a vent so that you can pour something into the sprue, you can pour wax into the sprue and then you can um, have the uh, have the air escape through the vents. Mm -hmm. When you get done, you've got this, this uh, wax figure that looks uh, like your rough clay uh, with a kind of a, 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 a funnel or a, a, a tube coming out where your uh, sprue was and then little, little stalks coming off the high points where your event was and you you cut those off and then you you start the real work which is to you know refine it and put the texture on and uh, that's a combination of carving or scraping and uh, using the the wax pen and the wax pen is is uh, uh it's just it's got a cord that goes to a to a to a, a unit with a a little box that has a dial on it so that it's like a rheostat so you can adjust how much current's going through there mm -hmm. and different tips uh, that you can fit into the into the pen it looks just like a kind of an oversized pen um, so you can you can adjust how much wax you drop into that pen it's like a fountain pen um, how much wax you're going to pull up into it uh, by capillary action um, because of the heat, if it's if if the tip is cool, you can pick up just a very small amount of wax, and so that's how I the the Dianoga had all these little uh, little warts and bumps all over the skin, and so that's how I would do that. I, I would uh, you know like yeah, buttons on a on a shirt of a of a figure, things like that. You could you could adjust the the heat of the wax pen, so you just Put that little dot there and then if it's a flat flat button like on a shirt you can just go in with a dental tool or something and just you know just slice off the, the top of it so it looks flat like a flat disc and it was just it, it was uh it was just a matter of, of learning the you know what tool works well on that scale and and uh um doing things like that um Everybody had a roll of toilet paper on their desk, and that was because uh, uh, one of the final stages of the piece was to take a piece of toilet paper or a, a soft cloth, uh, something like that, and, and you kind of buff the surface. It's wax, and it'll take a shine. And so you could get it very close to um, what it would look like in the, as a product. So basically, when you got done with the piece, uh, you'd have to have it signed off by uh, you know, the whole team and uh, you know their bosses and everything. So you'd have uh, designers and design managers and 
engineers and engineer managers and tooling engineers and and uh, then the VPs, you know, if it was an important project, um, they'd all have to sign off on it that they were satisfied with it. And uh, then um, then it went into a rubber mold. And from there we cast, uh, at that time the, in the sculpture department, we were still doing our own casting. And you cast it in a, like a urethane uh, resin. And then you'd, Usually we'd do we'd do three of them. The best one we would send to tooling, so that would be what they took to uh, uh, at that time to a tooling house. Uh, you know, Ferrio Brothers in uh, I think they were in Cleveland. Um, there were there was one that uh, did cast tooling in uh, Philadelphia, um, but they were all, all over the country. Um, so you'd you'd send one uh, hard copy to with the 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 uh, tooling engineer, and then there would be, uh, one that you would uh, send down to the shop because they would make their own molds, um, so that they would have uh, copies for like Toy Fair in New York uh, in December, and uh, then you'd. Uh, there'd be one copy that they would uh, use for paint copies, paint samples, so that when they sent it to the manufacturer, it would be painted. And uh, that was exactly how they would want them, um, you know, done in production. Yeah, that's incredible. That's a long process. When you, following your six weeks on your first project, uh-huh. what kind of doors opened up for you working with Kenner? What were the next couple projects you were working on? Well, I I was hoping it wasn't going to be another Dianoga. Uh, <laughs> the because of the the fact that uh, the body was so deep, and they wanted all those dimples, but all the dimples had to draft. Uh, draft is is uh, simply making sure that uh, the thing isn't going to hang up in the mold, so that when the mold separates, you're not going to have this 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 pimple sticking out where it can't it can't move. It can't. Yeah. It can't and and so um, I, I I I probably put all the texture on the Dianoga at least twice because uh, ju- just by handling the wax, the wax would wear off, and so all of a sudden it didn't have that bump anymore. You know, it was just kind of a little undulation, which didn't look like a it didn't look like a ward or anything. And uh, so um, Fortunately, I didn't have to do uh, another Dianoga. They, I, I think the next project I did was the uh, that walrus uh, face uh, character from the Cantina scene. Awesome, and uh, he was uh, he was more fun. And uh, I think it was I think that that too was a six week uh, development uh, schedule for us, but. Um, it was easier. It was more interesting because you had uh, you would what they would do at that time is give us an armature. It would be a little brass block, kind of a T-shaped block, and it would have it would have the the width of the shoulders defined, and then there'd be a hole at the top, and that was for the neck, and then there would it would it would step in. And uh, there would either be a, a hole or a, just a slot in there for a pin for the hips. 
So you could adjust. Yeah, if it was a slot, you could adjust the um, the distance between the arms and the hips, depending on the size of the figure. So um, basically, we would uh, um, in the early days we would model the clay over it and do the same thing I did with the Dinoga, except that we'd have uh, little um, we'd have little plastic discs that we would uh, use for the bearing surfaces uh, of the arms and the hips. So if you look at those figures, um, where the uh, arms connect to the uh, shoulder, it's always very close to a circle because they wanted it to look good. You know, they wanted it to not look mismatched. If you, you know, if the arm was swung up into a, you know, like a horizontal position or something like that. So you, when you were sculpting it, you always wanted to make sure that um, uh, all of a sudden there wasn't this odd flat sliver, you know, um, yeah. either on the arm or the shoulder that, you know, kind of looked like it didn't belong. So, you know, it was almost, it was very mechanical, uh, you know, but at least it didn't look like it was out of place. It didn't look like it was out of registration. And um, so we would we would work on that quite a while it would take quite a while because of the fact that you would you would get the mechanics right and then the form didn't you know wouldn't work quite right so you'd go back and shave something off here or build something up and and then of course you know maybe the costume um uh you know had to be addressed and they you know then you had to go and, and make sure that you could uh make the costume work with what you already had there in the form yeah. So then you'd you'd you know take a mold off that, and uh, then you would uh, put the put the armature inside the mold, and uh, then you would cast around the uh, around the armature. And uh, same thing with the legs. You know, you'd always do them separately. Um, the other way uh, that you, you we could do it, and then we ended up doing more often because it was more time efficient, was to um, simply build up wax directly onto the onto the armature. Yeah, and do it that way. And and later on, uh, a couple of years after that, later that after that, um, we would just take an existing figure and cannibalize it. So, you know, I like um there are certain figures that never survived. Uh, you know. Um any any collector that tells you he's got the original uh uh wax, for example, of the uh of the uh first uh C three PO is either misinformed or he's he's uh, trying to trying to pass one over on you because uh i i cannibalized the c3po uh to make the uh death star droid or not the death star droid the uh the droid in the sand crawler wow there's a, a, a silver silver uh droid that looked very much like the uh the c3po figure and you see it for about probably probably about a second and a half in the movie and um it just turns its head and, and kind of you know like says something electronic 
um, when when they get dumped in the in the sand crawler, you know, as the newcomers. Um, and so I, I spent a lot of time down in the uh, um, down on the tenth floor, where, which is where the design department was, um, because they had a, a video machine in a, in one of the closets. And they, they had a copy of Star Wars, you know, just, I, I think almost permanently enshrined, you know, in the machine. And so I, I just cue it up to that scene and I just, you know, hit play for a second and a half and then stop it <laughs> or, or try to freeze it, you know. And uh, uh, when, when you'd freeze it, of course, it, everything went fuzzy, you know, yeah. you, you, it didn't stay clear. So I mean, you know, I, there were there were times I, I'd spend like uh, you know uh, forty five minutes at a time down there just looking, and then stopping, going back, you know, and then going back up to the studio, uh, you know, on the twelfth floor, and uh, you know, making changes <laughs> in it. Uh, it, it. It took a while, but uh, you know, I, I can guarantee you there is no more uh, original C three PO wax. Yeah. How many times, because you would have to watch the movie a little bit and then sculpt and make changes, how many times do you think you've actually seen Star Wars because of that? Sections of it I've probably seen, uh, you know, uh, 30, 40 times, like Mm -hmm. that one. Um, But I'm I'm sure I've probably seen the whole movie probably, probably, uh, you know, four or five times each, you know, each of the movies the first yeah. three. Um, I, I, I left Kenner before they went into those, uh, those sequels mm-hmm. or sequels. Um, so I, I, I worked through the first three and then worked on other, you know, other lines, you know, along with star Wars. Thursday night, 7 p.m. YouTube Live. It's Toys Alive. Toys Alive. Toys Alive. Toys Alive. This way cool artist unboxing counts under a thousand followers. Art out there for 30 bucks or less. Collector Spotlight. Current upcoming shows and drops. Giveaways. Short chats with artists. News from the hood. 100% indie all the time. That's Toys Alive. Thursday nights, 7 p.m. PST, YouTube Live. Over your time with Kenner, um, and then we'll we'll continue following your career a little bit, but over your time with Kenner, what were some of the, your, the projects that they had you working on that were some of your favorites? Well, uh, the Star Wars were, were hard to beat. Yeah. You know, they were very interesting. Uh, so, you know, I did, I did a number of figures. I did... Uh, um, I did Luke in his Hoth outfit, you know, with the dramatic scarf, you yeah. know, and I did one of the, uh, um, one of the rebel, uh, officers in that I did the, uh, um, uh, the B- Billy D Williams character mm-hmm. in cloud city. Um, I did the, uh, I did the um, the Dagobah Swamp Planet. Um, that was fun. I did um, the Rancor. The I did the Dubak and the Tauntaun. 
you know, the ones with the trap doors where you, you know, stick the figure in. Yeah. Camouflage trap door with a saddle, you know. Um, I have a, a love for the animals. If I, I don't, when it comes to Star Wars toys, I don't collect many of them, but I do love having the animals because they have crazy shapes and all kinds of things. Oh, yeah. What, they were so inventive. Yeah. What is it like uh, when sculpting um, like the 3.75 figures versus the animals? What, what are the major differences that you're having to go through? Well, um, of course, the armatures would be different. Uh, and... and um... The armatures uh, tended to get uh, more simplified, um, but it, it was kind of liberating in that, uh, you know, the, the first of all, the scale was a little bigger. Yeah. Uh, Anton and the Dubak were both bigger than the uh, than the uh, uh, figures. Um, so, um, you know, it was kind of liberating that you're working with larger masses. Uh, of course, that was a downside when you got the the forms refined, and then you had to start putting on the texture. Um, like with the dewback, um, it had that scaly, uh, scaly skin, like a like a lizard. Uh, and then, of course, the the hair around the around the neck and and so forth. But those scales all had to be put in. Um, and the easiest way you, with the texture, very often you'll you would end up trying several methods, and you wouldn't be satisfied with one, and so you'd go back and you'd try something else. And so it's it's got uh, the dewback had all these scales on it, and they were fairly large scales, but they it wasn't like a fish scale pattern where there was a, a clear cut layer of rule rows of, of scales uh that overlap like shingles uh it was it was kind of like just a this almost like a puzzle you know and just wandering lines and very irregular and uh so i i i tried scribing them into the form and i wasn't real satisfied with that it wasn't sharp enough and it didn't really capture you know what i thought um the skin of the of the Dubak really looked like in the movie, and I found that the the easiest way to do it was to take the waxer and then just start, you know, depositing little drops of wax and and kind of uh, controlling the size of the of the wax, but making sure that they were regular. And it was really easy to, you know, just drag the tip a little bit when you after you deposited and kind of elongate it or put a corner on it or something like that. And uh, so I, I could, uh, you know, cover the 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 torso or the or the legs with uh, these uh, bumps, and um, then take uh, sandpaper and just sand them flat on the top, and that would give you something that looked very close to you know what it was in the movie, and then I could always take a dental tool. Um, you know, uh, one that had kind of the right size point. Yeah. And go in there and reinforce that, you know, just scribe it so that it was a little sharper. And so that's, that's how I ended up doing the, uh, you know, the do back. Um, the, uh, the Tauntaun 
was a little easier because it was all hair. Mm-hmm. And uh, God knows, I I love doing hair. You know, <laughs> you just do a lot of things with it. You know, um, when I well, when I was working on the, the Dolly Parton Sphinx, I became very uh, very aware of how hair moves and and everything, and and so working on on it on the wax was fun. Um, and that, that was one of the that was one of the pieces I had. You know, I had a really good time with. I just enjoyed working on it a lot. Uh, first of all, the, the the form, the face, and everything, and the, the horns are just such an unusual combination. Um. And then uh, you know the other the other uh, creature that I worked on that I really enjoyed was the Rancor, and you know by the by the action figure standards that was like monumental you know it was, <laughs> yeah it, it seemed huge, um, but I I uh, I was really attracted to that uh, I think I think that early on John Gardner uh, uh, realized that I, I I did ugly a lot better than I did pretty. <laughs> so he would he would have me working on things like strawberry shortcake or or uh care bears or something like that when he had to <laughs> <laughs> otherwise he, i you know I, I was i was working on uh on, on ugly um i did uh i did the um the large or the 12 inch um Obi-Wan Kenobi figure that had, you know, sewn clothes and everything. But uh, basically all that, all the sculpture that was involved with that was uh, the head and uh, the boots because it was, it was simply a, a, a male action figure or a male uh, uh, doll, you know, like a, the Darcy doll at the time. They, they did the Darcy doll as a competitor with Barbie. And it was just kind of a stock figure under underneath the outfit, but uh, I did I did get a chance to work on the on the head on that and uh, um, enjoyed enjoyed working on that. But you know it was just kind of like well it's just piecework you know because there was no body to go with it really yeah. you know it seems more than challenging to go from a figure like the Rancor which is massive. And yeah. has all these weird shapes and arms, and the armature must be different to go to a a basic Barbie style figure. Oh uh, yeah, it, it was. It was. Uh, fortunately, Alec Guinness, uh, you know, had a he didn't have a pretty face. You know, he had a, he had a face uh, with a lot of character, and with the beard and the hair and everything, it was it was uh, something you could really you know kind of uh, yeah, enjoy working on. You know, you could really yeah, uh, uh, so much of of the the process was uh, uh, a matter of problem solving. You know, how do I how do I do this in in wax so that it you know it works with the rest of the line and it works you know looks like what it was in the movie and stuff. Um, and um, you know the, the 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 creatures were were more fun because um, well they were just so wild. You know, the the, yeah. the rank or I always thought it had a face like a box car. You know, it's just that that big blunt um, face, and at the same time it had the big claws and everything, and all that warty skin with all the wrinkles and everything. You know, I I liked wrinkles too. You know, so anytime yeah. I got to, to do something with the wrinkles, that was a plus. Yeah, you know? following Star Wars 
How much longer were you with Kenner? I wasn't with them much longer after the after the third movie. Um, uh, all the all the time I was working there, um, because of the of the the workload and, and um, the the continually uh, tightening uh, schedules, uh, they were always looking someplace to to pull time out of the schedule and uh very often it, it would be you know the sculpting schedule it didn't always it didn't last that you know like six weeks per figure or you know uh, for a large like a large figure um it'd be like uh say 12 weeks um the large uh, uh darth vader figure the 12 inch darth vader figure um that was a 12 week development schedule and um there were i think there were five or six of, uh, of us in house uh sculptors that were working on them on, on the piece we we did it piecemeal so that uh one sculptor did the head one sculptor did the torso one did the arms one did the legs one uh you know and and uh, that's um and then we would periodically, like every couple of days, we'd put it together to see how it hung together. Yeah, you know, make sure that they all look like they belong together, you know. And I, I, evidently, I became the leg man because uh, I, I uh, did the legs on the Darth Vader. And then when we uh, later did the uh, alien um, figure for the for that movie, I think it was like a 16-inch figure or something like that. And I got I got the legs again. <laughs> um, but um, getting back to the to the the, um, the uh, scheduling, um, John Gardner uh, left. Oh, I think he left probably uh, two years before I did. Okay. Um, he he was from California originally. He was a California native, and he had. He had uh, started, uh, or he had come to uh, to Kenner after having uh, run the sculpture department and the packaging department at uh, Mattel, and so you know he he had a, a real strong and uh, long background in toys, but he also missed uh, California. I you know I don't think he was ever really comfortable in Cincinnati, just too midwestern. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh at any rate, um uh somebody else uh within the department uh, became the uh the uh, uh department head, uh a fellow named Rudy Vapp. And he had also been at at uh, Mattel before um before he came to uh Kenner and John had hired him. Um, but he he had a longer uh, or a deeper background in in toys. He had been at Mattel before that, and he'd gone to Mattel from um, uh, a toy uh, development company or inventing company in uh, Chicago named Marvin Glass. And so you know he 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 could already uh, he, he came in there knowing you know kind of what the conventions were, what the what the um, 
you know, engineering concerns were and, and things like that. So um, I he was there uh, about um, two years, and during that time, I, I started entertaining the idea of um, uh, becoming a freelance. Uh, when, like I said, when we had when we had overload, when we had um, periods of uh, uh, really heavy load, you know, different lines. I mean, there were always girl toys and and then the boys' toys, whether it was uh, Star Wars or something else. And so we would always uh, end up having to farm stuff out to freelancers. And uh, a lot of those freelancers were in California. John Gardner had known them uh, from his uh, his uh, days at Mattel and used them there. And uh, once in a while, they would they would bring them in house. They'd fly them in, uh, you know, to work in there. So you'd end up working next to them, you know, and talking to them and everything. And uh, <laughs> at the time, I thought. Well, what a perfect, what a perfect existence because um, I could work on toy work. And then when I'm not working on toy work for other uh, clients, I can work on my own work because I, I still tended to think of myself as a, as a fine artist, you know, mm -hmm. doing studio sculpture. And I, I had continued doing it while I was at Kenner, you know, so I'd, you know, maybe get up five o'clock in the morning sometimes and, and go down to my studio at home and uh work on something in card wood and then go into uh kenner and work there and wax so um in 1985 i i uh, left kenner and uh you know i i had i had laid groundwork i mean there were there were people in kenner who you know knew what i wanted to do some who had left already and were very they were very generous with giving me names and contacts and, and so forth and, uh, you know, I, I, I left Kenner and it wasn't long before, um, I was working as a, as a contractor for Kenner and working for, you know, like Hasbro and LJN and, and, um, those characters from Cleveland, you know, just a number of, of, uh, other toy companies. Um, and that was when, <laughs> that was when, that was when time really ran out, um, because, when you're in house, uh, John Gardner was very good. Um, when I when I was first there, I, and I of course I didn't realize uh, um, how effective he was. Um, John was always working on the bench with us. Um, you know, we would be working at our uh, at our desks. We we all had like steel case desks and and tension tension arm lamps you know and lot devices and we'd all be working there and john would be working on 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 uh something too unless he had to do paperwork in the office or he had to go to a meeting mm -hmm. and, and and was gone but otherwise he was always sitting there working at at his uh at his uh, desk along with us um but um after he left um the you know under under the new management style and everything there wasn't there wasn't the the resistance you know, there was nobody really holding back the waters and so uh time would you know, tend to get pulled out of out of a out of a schedule um 
you know, it's kind of like at a, at a meeting, you know, like uh, the, the VP is sitting there at the end of the table and say, we've got to pull two weeks out of that schedule. What is this, master? Deep in the darkest corners of our earth, digital sculptors are choosing body parts and combining them in unnatural ways. <laughs> they are making a mutant. The evolving group of worldwide toy makers has been collaborating digital sculpting and making a mutant on Instagram. <laughs> yes, making a mutant. on Instagram. <laughs> Join making a mutant on Instagram, a digital sculpting toy collab. And you know, somebody sits up and says, I could pull a week out <laughs> and then come back, uh, you know, back up to the studio and say, Damn, they just pulled a week out of our schedule. <laughs> well, that was kind of a that was kind of a, a warm up for for uh, uh, freelance because uh, when I became a freelancer, um, it's it, it kind of like the 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 new the new kid on the block. Everybody wants to try this new sculptor, you know. So you get a ton of uh, jobs, and you hate to turn any of them away. And so what you end up doing is you end up staying up all night. You know, um, doing that to to make the deadline, and you know, in in most cases, other than Kenner, you, you had to get it to the airport or get it to FedEx or something, you know, and, and ship it out, um, you know, so that it, it got there. Usually, it got there on time for a men a Monday meeting, you know. So you'd you'd end up, you know, like uh, um, driving it out to uh, you know FedEx at the airport making it by there by three on Saturday afternoon and then going home and sleeping. <laughs> but, but the other, the other part of it was that if you didn't have work, it was hard to concentrate on your own stuff, you know, the, the, on my studio stuff, because you're worried about, you know, what's going on, you know, like, uh, you know, when, 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 when somebody going to call, you know, so, uh, it, it wasn't the idyllic, uh, you know, situation that I had, imagined yeah did you stay in the freelance circle for the rest of your career or did you end up going back and doing sculpture work with someone else well i ended up going back uh back in house but not with kenner um in in the in the interim <clears throat> after i left uh we when i left when i was with kenner we were uh uh we were a, a division of uh of General Mills, so which meant, of course, we always got free coffee in the sculpture department. You know, there was always a coffee maker, and yeah. it was always it was always Folgers, you know, coffee because of Mills. <clears throat> um, but after I left, within a few years after I left, um, General Mills spun uh, Kenner off. Kenner uh, became a freestanding company again. They owned themselves. Um, and um, so I continued to work with them. Uh, and then, uh, of course, um, ha or, well, first, first Tonka bought Kenner. So then they were answering to, um, you know, somebody in Minneapolis. <clears throat> and I continued to work with them, um, worked on, on things like Jurassic Park and, and, uh, 
the um, Ridges of the Lost Ark figures uh, and stuff like, you know, properties like that. And then they ended up, uh, Tonka got acquired by uh, Hasbro. And so all of a sudden, instead of having, you know, like three and four main clients, the, the, the my client base kept shrinking. You know, all, Tonka kept buying everybody. And uh, so at any rate, um, the fellow who had been one of the uh, last managers of the uh, sculpture department, my manager when I left, um, he had stayed with them through all of those changes. But then uh, all of a sudden I heard that he had um, gone to work for one of the uh, uh, design directors at, at Kenner who had been hired away by uh, Warner Brothers. Um, and Warner Brothers had done a lot of work with Kenner, you know, like Batman and you know, all, all of these movie rights or movie properties. Um, Kenner had developed a real strong uh, relationship with, uh, with uh, Warner Brothers. But Warner Brothers uh, was always, you know, kind of dissatisfied with, uh, you know, the way the contract went. You know, they always kind of wanted, uh, you know, like get a higher percentage of, of uh, the royalties um, from, you know, every toy that was sold. And so what they uh, they finally did was to um, they identified this uh, design manager. Um, and they thought that he was probably, he had been interfacing with them a lot. And so he knew the people. And um, so they basically lured him away from Kenner and said, you know, set up the company, you know, it'll be Warner Brother Toys. And um, he, he told them, um, well, he says, uh, under one condition, he said, uh, you know, the people that, are, that I'm going to hire that are going to make it work are going to be in Cincinnati. They're not going to be out in California. And they said, fine, if you don't mind flying out uh, one week out of uh, a month or something, uh, you know, fine. So he did. And one of the first hires was uh, this other sculptor that I, you know, worked with at, uh, at Kenner. And um, so I ended up eventually going and uh, working with uh, working as an employee in Warner, Warner Brother Toys. So again, we were working with uh, movie properties, things like that. And had a great time. It was a small company. It was a small environment. You know, I mean, like we were a two-man sculpture department. Yeah. Whereas before it had been like a six or seven-man, you know, sculpture department. And uh, everything was contained within one big old brick house, uh, up on Mount Adams in Cincinnati, you know. So I mean, it was <laughs> it was the best of times, you know. Yeah. Um, but at some point, uh, Warner Brothers uh, uh, basically spun us off. We became a freestanding company, and then you know, hard time times came. Um, there were a lot of things that went into it, but uh, the company ended up folding, and. Uh, about 2001. So then this this other fellow, his name is Bob Moore. Um, he and I just, uh, you know, started and another uh, one of the uh, one of the accountants um, started a, a small company. Uh, and we just did 
work for other toy companies again, you know, we became BSK and uh, we, uh, Bob and I continued doing that until, until, um, until my wife and I moved out to uh, uh, Philadelphia area. Have you pretty much retired from, well, it's tough because I've seen, um, I do want to ask you how you did recently sculpt something for um, someone that released this toy. It's like a little dewback kaiju. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah which is incredible. Um, yeah. So the question is then, are, have you basically stopped working with toy companies and all that stuff and work on commissions in the time? Yeah. And I, I, I work for, you know, there are a lot of makers. Yeah. Um, that I've become aware. It's it, it's like this. There's this whole world that I didn't know existed. Yeah. Uh, my son uh, has become involved in it, and you know he does uh, a lot of his own own pieces. And I worked on a couple of pieces with him. And then there are people like Roger that I, uh, you know, end up I'll end up doing an occasional piece for. Um, I was working uh, Bob. Uh, and I still both, you know, do the occasional piece. Um, uh, but um, Bob uh, became involved with uh, Super 7. Mm. And uh, he was working on that, and he got swamped. And so uh, he called me and asked me if I wanted to uh, help him out with a couple of figures on that and take some of the pressure off. And so I did. And then I ended up, you know, just work doing regular work for Super 7 for a while. But I think that uh, basically all of us from that generation um, are kind of like artifacts because the large toy companies now are, are pretty much doing everything digitally. Yeah. There's very little being being done, you know, by, by hand modeling or carving. Um, and, you know, there's there's reason for it um it's i think it's cheaper for one thing uh and it's faster because um when we did it we would pretty much have to we'd have to sculpt it sculpt the figure or whatever it was um a little bit oversized uh, because uh when the when they when they um when they model mold something in in clay or in uh, plastic, it's going to shrink a little bit, you know, just like wax. You you cast a wax and you know then you you cool it, pull it out of the mold. It's a little bit smaller than your clay was, and uh, the same thing happened uh, happens with plastic. Well, you know that was always a, always a concern. And you'd, you know, you'd spend all this time sculpting something and then you make a mold of it, a rubber mold, and then you cast a, a like a urethane hard copy. The hard copy would go to the toolers. The, the toolers would have to uh, make a cast of it. And what they would do is they would usually um, have a, 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 a pantograph set up where they would actually grind out the cavity for the toy um just you know grinding steel yeah uh, at the cavity and um 
so you know the the, the scaling and uh, just the, the the amount of the, the the time required became a real problem. Well, now um, if um, somebody is working at a at a computer and uh, they start out with a, like say a generic figure or something, um, they'll when I when I when I the last time I I, I saw anything. Uh, like that, I uh, I was sent by uh, when I was at uh, 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 Warner Brothers. Um, they asked me if I'd go up and look at a, a computerized you know system. And at that time, it was you had a, a like like a stylus on a gimbal, uh, you know, attached to the to the computer, and you had a screen, and you start out with a you know in their demonstration, they they start out with a a cube of virtual clay and you could you know pick a tool like a pushing tool or a loop tool to take material away and uh just you know sit there and virtually by moving this stylus you would you would change the shape and you would ultimately shape it into whatever you wanted and uh, at that time of course then you you'd burn it to a disc now you i'm sure you don't even burn it to a disc you just hit send yeah. and you can Send the file to somebody, and they can they can uh, just uh, you know print it 3D mm-hmm. on a 3D printer. And at the at the time, the last time I, I I saw it, the one thing they couldn't really the 3D printers couldn't really do well was hair. But I'm sure that that's become so refined now that you know that's not a problem either. Um, but you know the whole idea of, of doing it virtually. You, you, that's not why I went into sculpture. You know, I like the, the, you, know, you have kind of a dialogue with the material. Um, you know, you, you, um, you get a feel for the material and you enjoy pushing it around or taking it away, carving it or whatever, but you, you don't get that same satisfaction by, you know, just moving a stylus and, and seeing it on the screen. Yeah. And so I never, I never, um, um, kept myself current, I guess you would say. Uh, I never um, learned how to how to uh, do that, um, you know. And so, as a result, um, as far as you know, the the industry at large, I'm 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 not really involved in it. But with you know, the small makers are still interested in in hand done work. I guess I'm still. I still got my hand in, you know, a little bit. Yeah. It's incredible to see um, because uh, I just remember playing with those toys that you created. And I still have a love for some of those toys. And um, it's just an incredible thing. Get to this point and now be creating toys myself and interviewing people and, being able to talk to you and and just it's like the slamming together of generations. It's incredible. Well, and that's that's really uh, that's really kind of um, kind of a, a an unexpected payoff because at the time, you know, I mean, uh, all of us working there, uh, we you know, it was nice work, but it was it was basically a job, you know, yeah. um, that was put paid the bills and everything, and uh, it's. Uh, you know, I I I, I kind of um, started playing around with with uh, 
um, kind of leaving stuff for kids to find. Uh, you know, and the, the I guess the, the biggest example or the most infamous example was the Dagobah Swamp Planet. Yeah. Uh, because I, I, I left, I, I hid my signature in there and my wife's name in there and my daughter's name on, on some uh, critters in, in on the back of the tree and then put a um, self-portrait in there. And uh, I, I didn't think anybody would really find them, but I thought, yeah, it's, you know, it, it had so much stuff going on in there that I thought it'd be interesting to see, you know, um, leave stuff there for, for kids to, to kind of find. And um, I've told this story, you know, several times, but uh, my daughter, uh, when she was uh, in college, she was going to uh, uh, Center for Creative Studies in, the, in uh, Detroit. And she uh, had a boyfriend at one point who lived in uh, another city. And she went home with him for a weekend to meet the family and everything. And they went to a bar one night to meet up with some of his friends from high school. And um, so, you know, you're just talking about, uh, you know, um, coming from, you know, Cincinnati and everything. Mention, having to mention the fact that I, I you know, did sculpture for Star Wars stuff. And this one, one of these guys, evidently, his eyes got real big and said, oh, my God, you're the Emily. Because <laughs> <laughs> he had found her name on, on the back of a uh, you know, snake or a lizard, you know, years ago when he was a kid playing with, playing with the toy. And I thought, well, that's kind of a payoff, you know, that's, that's kind of neat, you know. Kind of like a some little communi- communication with the with the mar- the kids in, that form the market, you know. Yeah, as we um, as we approach the end of the podcast, um, we usually I, I have people plug all the stuff that they're doing. But for you, um, did you are you still taking on commissions now? I know that you've taken on a few, um, and if so would you take on more if people reached out? Yeah, I, I, I think I would. Um, the one, the one ca- caveat that I, I have to um, interject is that I don't, I don't work that fast anymore. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, you know, I, I, I have, uh, I have a, a left wrist that gives me problems and I just can't, I can't spend the time at the bench nonstop like I used to, but yeah. I'm always, or you know, doing something as long as it's not a tight deadline. Yeah. As as long as it doesn't have to make it for Toy Fair this year or something, you know. <laughs> if they want to reach out to you and ask um, about anything that have to do with commissions, how would they get in touch with you? Uh, they can just um, uh, get a hold of me on uh, on my uh, by email. Great. And, um, you know, you've got my email address. I don't know if you want me to, uh, to, uh, repeat it or not. Uh, you can repeat it out loud for them, or I can tag it in the episode so they can find it in the bio. It's just, it's just my name, Stephen Roy Geddes with a PH and, uh, two D's and an ES, uh, at, uh, at gmail.com. Awesome. Stephen, it's been I, I don't know how to express how exciting it's been to be on this side of this conversation and be able to oh. talk to you. 
Well, it's, it's, it's been fun. I just hope it hasn't been too boring for you. No, not at all. I do have to ask one question though. I know we didn't talk about this before I let you go. Um, I have two friends that work in toys um, and they do a lot of wax sculpting and they absolutely love doing wax sculpting and they do demonstrations and all kinds of stuff. Uh-huh. Is there a specific formula of wax or type of wax that you love to use? There was a company that used to make, uh, and I can't remember the name of the company. It was called Carvex. Um, but the, the, the formula for the wax that we came up with was, uh, it's, a, it's a combination of waxes. And, uh, you know, if somebody's interested, I, I can give you what the ingredients are and, and the rough proportions. Uh, you know, you, you can always adjust the proportions and get slightly different, you know, effects with it and everything. Um, one of the ingredients, I don't know if it's, if it's even available anymore, um, but um, it was a paste. And it was, the, it was a pigmented paste. And it's the same thing. It was the same paste the same pigment that they actually used in the plastics uh when they manufactured like you know barbie or or any of the you know the figures um but uh other than that everything else is just a raw material you know there's some uh carnauba wax uh there's some paraffin there's uh, you know they're just different waxes basically yeah awesome Thank you so much for coming on Toys on Tap. Um, I can't wait to release this episode. Okay, well, it's it's been fun. Like I said, I just hope I don't, you know, put somebody to sleep in describing some of the processes. Finally, a reason to go back to the office. Introducing 9 to 5 Warriors, an exciting new toy line created for the Toys R Us kid that never grew up. Offering 10 unique characters that are perfect for your cubicle or home office. The 9 to 5 Warriors are available through Big Bad Toy Store. Join the battle alongside Major Eraser and the Water Cooler Commandos as they keep the peace. Or wreak havoc with Colonel Custard and the Break Room Bandits. Choose your side as these two forces clash over total office domination. It every day from nine to five. Warning, do not leave unattended. Each figure sold separately. When you punch out, they come punching in.